1 Chronicles chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me, and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Let's pray us. Uh, Father, we turn to your word this morning and we do ask for ears to hear and uh, lips to speak faithfully. Um, Help me to to speak the things that you would have me speak for us to hear them well and to surrender to your word, to be better prayers, to be more faithful to you in our lives, more Christ-likeness and holiness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last few weeks, we have examined how Christians ought to pray uh, and what types of things should fill our prayers, at least our prayers of petition, or things that we ask for in prayer. And this has not been a, a comprehensive sermon series. We haven't looked at every single teaching on prayer in the Bible. Um, but I hope, and I pray, Uh, that the diverse representation of passages that we're looking at have shaped and and aided your prayer life to be more in line with God's word. I'm going to move this back. I hope you guys don't mind. But I'm kind of weirded out. I keep looking at the microphone. Um, What we have looked at so far are, are things like the need to pray for God's promises to pray with an eternal perspective, to pray for Christ-likeness for our brothers and sisters in Christ, to trust and worship in the midst of tragedy. And what we haven't heard much about is praying for things, specific things and stuff in this world. And that's mostly because, frankly, that's not something that Scripture emphasizes. That's not a big theme in the Bible. But all of us do pray for things. We do pray for stuff. I'm pretty positive that you have all done that. I've done that. And so I think it's valuable to to look more specifically at that. Can you think of a time uh, when you did ask for something and God answered your prayer? And I don't mean a, a general answer, but can you think of a time when you prayed for something and God specifically answered it? Perhaps a lot of us feel that way, so maybe ratchet up the stakes just a, a little bit. Uh, because maybe you've prayed for something specific and that specific thing came about, but it, a skeptical person might say, oh sure, but that's not so improbable or surprising that you got that thing as far as I can see. Um, you know, I think you would have gotten it whether you had prayed or not. And you might reason that... Um, that difference in attitude between you and the skeptic is the difference between faith and non-faith. And you might be right, but for argument's sake, let's ratchet it up a bit. Have you ever prayed for something big, something improbable, and had it answered to a T so that there could be little question, even from a skeptic, whether the request was fulfilled? 
Well, this morning we're going to look at one such prayer. It's a little prayer. It's very short. But it prays for some very big things. And, and God answers it and, and fulfills the requests. The other prayers that we have looked at have been prayers that we expect that God would fulfill or prayers that he had already begun to fulfill and, and they were praying for them to be fulfilled even more. But here is a prayer that we know with certainty the outcome. And because of that, it's a valuable lesson in answered prayer. There's another reason why I included this passage in our current sermon series. Um, frankly, there's not been a lot that I'm aware of. There's not been a lot of influential, and I think by definition, if I'm not aware of it, there hasn't been a lot. There hasn't been a lot of influential, well-known teaching on prayer that I can point to in my lifetime. I, I can point to books that I think are really good books or, or really good sermons or really good teachers on prayer. Uh, but there's been very little that has actually taken hold in the church where people would rally around it and, and say, yeah, you've, you've got to hear this. You've got to read this. You've got to look at this. It's just, it's not out there. With, with one exception. Um, and this morning's passage was obscure for most of church history, I imagine, until a few years ago when one author turned it into a small book. I'm having all kinds of issues this morning. I apologize. Um, my alarm's going off in the middle of the sermon. But one, one author turned it into a small book that sold tens of millions of copies, uh, untold dollars of merchandise, office supplies, journals, Bibles, decorations, tokens, trinkets. Uh, it, it went viral. And, and the great heyday for that product placement was in the early to mid-2000s. So it might well be that some of you here are blissfully ignorant of the phenomenon. Um, but the work had so much staying power, and a few of us are a few of us are quite old enough to remember it, that I suspect many do know what I'm talking about. And for those who don't, well, there's a good chance you've been influenced by it even indirectly. So the best-known teaching on prayer in the last quarter century is based on this passage. Um, I don't know that's a good thing, but it seemed wise to pick up this passage and expound on it for that reason alone. Uh, the prayer of, of Jabez, you know, as it's called, has been called, quote, the prayer that God always answers and the key to living a, quote, blessed life. But I think we'll see that that kind of teaching really puts the cart before the horse. Instead, let me suggest that Jabez's prayer teaches us that God answers faithful prayer. God answers faithful prayer. And, and we're going to see that faith pushes and powers prayer. Now, a little bit of background. Uh, First and Second Chronicles were written after a period called the Exile. And it, and it concerns mainly the Israelites. It's actually one book. Uh, it was probably historically divided onto two scrolls because of its length, and so we got First and Second Chronicles, but it's, it's really one piece of literature. And the name, although it sounds kind of boring, it gets its name because it is a chronicling of Israel's history. But it's a theological history. It's, it's interesting how God has been active and moving in that history. And an abbreviated history of Israel would go like this. The forefathers of Israel were chosen by God, 
uh, to become a nation that would bless the world. Talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They grew into a numerous people, but they were enslaved in Egypt for a period. God judges the Egyptians, rescues his people from there, forming them into a nation over which he would rule as king. The Israelites trekked into the land east of the Mediterranean Sea as God had promised to give it to them and drive out the nations that were there because those nations had become incredibly wicked. And Israel, by God's help, engages in a series of military campaigns to take the land, but the work was always incomplete because the young nation of Israel routinely abandoned their God. Eventually, they demanded a king like other nations. They wanted a king to unite their various factions And in doing so, they rejected God as their king. But God was merciful, and he gave them kings with the idea that the human king ought to represent God's divine rule. There are times in which that seemed to be almost a tangible reality, but over time, the nation fractured again. The Israelites rebelled against God, and God finally judged them by sending other nations, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, to conquer them and to take them captive. But after a time during which many Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon, a Persian king granted them the right to return and to establish some semblance of local control. And it seems like the book of Chronicles was written during that period to give the reestablished people a sense of what God had been up to through all these difficulties so that they might not repeat the same mistakes again. And the book opens with your favorite genre of literature, those long genealogies. So-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. And they can be dull to read. Lots of names that are hard for us to pronounce. But to a faithful Jew in the 5th century B.C., this was their connection to those ancient promises that God had made to them through their ancestors. The chosen kings of Israel had generally come from the family of Judah, one of the 12 brothers of the Jewish patriarch Jacob, And in 1 Chronicles 4, we are in the middle of some of the family tree of that line. A line that should be full of blessing and should be full of promise. In the midst of that line, we encounter Jabez. And rather than continuing to rattle off names, the author stops. Because there is something that needs to be noted about Jabez. From a historical standpoint, there's three things that are worth noting about Jabez. First, as best as I can tell, Jabez probably lived in the time after Israel entered the land that we call Canaan or Palestine on the eastern bank of the Mediterranean, but before the time that Israel had a king. This period of time is is called the, the era or the time of the judges because Israel was guarded and governed by a series of regional bigwigs that were called judges. Um, It was an exceptionally dark period in Israel's history. They were supposed to be conquering these evil nations around them, but more often than not, they tolerated those nations and even adopted those nations' customs. And as a result, Israel became engaged in horrible atrocities, idol worship, child sacrifice. It was bleak. Not everything was bad, but it certainly was not the best of times. And so Jabez almost certainly lived during this very difficult era. Second... He was characterized by pain, at least for his mother. The text says in verse 9 that his mother called him Jabez because she had given birth to him in pain. The Hebrew word for pain is similar to the word Jabez. 
was this her first child? Did she just not know how this worked? Or, you know, was Jabez a particularly painful child to deliver? We, we don't know. But we do know that the infant mortality rate in the ancient world was astronomical, and, and so much so that parents often waited for the child to be weaned from its mother's milk before bestowing a formal, official, proper name. And if that was the course she followed, then, then how bad must it have been that two or three years after this child was born, she still reflected on him as pain? Perhaps he was a difficult infant also. Um, sometimes I, I understand why you might call a child pain. Um, but we simply don't have much information. But his beginnings were inauspicious. And third, he's missing a father. We can't be sure why, but it, it is significant. And the reason why I think we can be sure that it's significant, even though we don't know why, is that this is a patriarchal genealogy. A number of women are mentioned in here, but it's mostly a father-son chart. Jabez stands out because he has brothers and he has a mother, but there is no mention of a father. The book of Judges in the Bible, it records a lot of sexual immorality. It records rape. It records violence. Perhaps Jabez has no father because of these types of evils. Perhaps that's why his birth was so painful. Maybe it wasn't physical pain alone. But his mother was... And Jabez were in a culture in which men were supposed to protect single women but during a time period in which wickedness seemed to be winning over righteousness. And so if indeed she was single or distant enough from Jabez's father that he doesn't bear mentioning, that would have been a very precarious position, especially in that time period. What we can say for certain is that the author would know that electing to not mention Jabez's father would stand out to his readers in 5th century B.C., much more so than a modern reader. It makes Jabez aberrant. It makes him unnormal. And we may not know the details, but there is something wrong. So historically, we have a fatherless child who by his very existence brought great pain to his mother during a time of rampant injustice and evil. And that's our historical context for Jabez. And let's look at the substance of his account and, and talk a little bit more theology than history. In verse 9, we learn that Jabez is more honorable than his brothers. And we don't know why or, or how right off the bat. But it seems like something the author wouldn't hide from us. He doesn't intend for Jacob or Jabez to be sort of an amorphous honorable uh, without any sort of explanation. So I, I believe the explanation is in the next words that follow. And I think it's to be borne out in the prayer itself. What we do know about being honorable right off the bat, though, is that when somebody is described in the Bible as being more honorable than, uh, when they're described as being honorable in relationship to other people, it typically had to do with prominence and, and renown. So keep that in the back of your mind, but we'll say more on that in a minute. minute. Let's say something else about his naming, though. Not so much from a historical standpoint, 
but the substance of it. We looked at it already from a historical reality, but it has a social and it has a religious significance also. Because there's without a doubt an idea among the ancient Hebrews, you can see all throughout the, the Old Testament, that a person's name was meaningful. Heck, we even believe that today. How much time, you know, if you know any new parents, how much time do they spend going over and over and over a billion names for their child? And how it has to be just right. And, you know, how if, you, if, you, if they get it wrong, then this child could live a horrible life, right? Um, parents are, are crazy about their names. But especially in the ancient world, the, a name was meaningful and it could be almost prophetic. Now, the Bible never teaches this. The Bible never teaches that the name becomes the substance of what you are. But it does record a great number of instances in which people who had names that seemed significant, often wind up having that significance fulfilled in their lives. But the Bible also shows the opposite, too. The Bible also records histories in which a name is, ironically, the opposite of reality. You think about Naomi in the book of Ruth, uh, whose name means sweet or my sweetness, and tragedy befalls her. And so in bitterness, she tells people to stop calling her sweet and instead call her Mara, bitter. But as I said before, they often waited a few years to give a name. And, and if you've ever seen a young child grow up, you probably realize that by three years old, they have some pretty recognizable personality traits that tend to stick with them. But this name isn't about Jabez. It's about the pain his mother endured. And a typical Israelite around 1200 BC might feel that a name like pain was a curse. And that's strangely fitting because his mother's words echo an ancient curse. When the first humans sinned against God, curses came upon the ancient world. And, and one of which was that childbearing would be incredibly painful. God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Change that last phrase from a you statement to an I statement, and you have Jabez's mother's words almost exactly. It's interesting that among the various mammals, humans seem to have a particularly long and painful birthing process. I scanned an article in American Scientist about five years ago that explains that scientists have difficulty understanding this from an evolutionary standpoint. Uh, easier births would typically be an evolutionary advantage. Theories about why this is, why humans seem to suffer more than other mammals in childbirth are inconclusive and conflicting, don't explain all the data. And regardless of your position on evolution generally, Perhaps the rationale for a painful birth lies outside biology and in theology. Jabez's painful birth was a product of a divine curse. And it would also be reasonable to think in his generation, in his time period, that giving him such a dark name might make him, Jabez, cursed. And I don't want to over-sensationalize this, but at the same time, the author puts these details in here for a reason. The allusions and innuendo are intentional, and they're there for our benefit and for our encouragement. 
I suspect that many of us, though, though many of us are, are fairly young, are well acquainted with pain. Perhaps some of you, like Jabez, had parents who suffered pain and, and tried to lay that pain on your shoulders so that you grew up carrying their baggage. It's possible that Jabez himself did experience extraordinary pain, as his name would suggest, and it's possible you can relate to that as well. But look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Jabez called upon the God of Israel. Here we have the first positive reference to God in the entire book of Chronicles. Four chapters in. It's the second mention overall, but the first mention comes in the context of one of Judah's sons, a son of the royal line. And the royal son, his name was Er, was wicked. And we don't know what he did, but the Bible tells us twice, at least, that he was so wicked in God's eyes that God put him to death. He was precisely what God's people were not supposed to be. And the author of Chronicles reminds us of his evil. That's the the first mention of God in Chronicles, but it's a kind of negative reference. It's it's an unfortunate circumstance. And then we get down to chapter 4, and as we approach the end of the genealogy of the royal line of Judah, we have our second reference to God. But this time, rather than rebelling against him, as Er did, Jabez calls upon him. And this tells us that Jabez was a man of faith because the language of calling upon God is used everywhere in Scripture to indicate a faithful response to God. Jabez is a man of faith. He's a man of faith in an era that was full of faithlessness and evil. And while some have said that this is a prayer that God always answers and some have even encouraged non-believers to pray this prayer because God would use it to work wonders in their lives, that simply does not line up with what Scripture says. Not generally and not specifically about Jabez. It is faith that powers the prayer. And without faith, the prayer has no power. Faith powers prayer. But I want us to be careful here, because there's a movement out there that suggests that if you exercise enough faith, you can claim great blessings from God. Riches, jobs, security, spouses... Sometimes it's called the prosperity gospel or it's called name it, claim it theology because it believes that you can speak into existence the things that you desire if you have faith. And often this line of thinking will point to places like James chapter 5. A couple years ago now we worked through the book of James as a sermon series and near the conclusion of James' letter, James emphasizes the power of prayer born out of faith and the prayer of a righteous person and how effective and powerful it is. And as I was working through this sermon, I came across an article by the Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson on this prayer of faith and what it is. And <laughs> This is my whole family today. Uh, um, Ferguson puts it succinctly. He says, this then is the prayer of faith, to ask God to accomplish what he has promised in his word. To ask God to accomplish what he has promised in his word. There are similarities in that statement to some of what we said on the Lord's Prayer, which was the first in this series. But it also squares with what we know about faith. The author of Hebrews wrote, 
Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And by this, he didn't mean that faith is an empty hope without evidence. Rather, he meant that there are good promises of God, that we trust a good God to uphold in his goodness. And they might not be realized yet, they might not be realized in part, they might not be realized in whole, and so we might not see those promises manifested yet, but we have faith that they will be. And so we trust God to make good on his word. And so the flip side of that is that we can't have faith in what God has not promised. Because we have no basis for hope if God has not promised it. I have faith that I will be transformed and raised to new life because God said it. I have faith that I will be shown mercy on the day of judgment because God said it. I have faith that my trials and my pains in this life are for my good and for his glory because he said it. I do not have faith that I will get this or that job. I don't have faith that I will receive this or that monetary blessing. I, I, I don't have faith that I will be healed of this infirmity or sickness. I, I don't have faith that the right friend will be there. You, you, you can't have faith that you're going to find the right job or the right spouse or the right anything. And, and the reason is because God hasn't promised those things in his word. He's promised that he'll be good to you if you're his child. He promises that he will bless you. He promises you uh, that you can be satisfied in him. He has promised to be enough whether I eat or whether I go hungry, whether I'm well or whether I'm sick, whether I'm clothed well or whether I'm clothed poorly. He has promised that his righteousness is enough and that I can be satisfied in him. I can have faith in that. You can have faith in that. But we can only really have faith in the things that he has promised. At least Christian faith. Biblical faith. But when we have that kind of faith, and when we pray with that kind of faith, it powers our prayer. And we're going to see that as we unpack this prayer, that Jabez isn't seeking anything that God has not already promised. But as we unpack it, we're going to see not only does faith power the prayer, but faith pushes it. Jabez's prayer is in four parts. We're going to break it in three parts. And the first part is, oh, that you would bless me. Blessing for us is a hashtag. Uh, we, we talk about being blessed when all of our external circumstances seem to line up the way that we would like them to line up. When I get everything going on in my life the way that I want things going on in my life, then I say I'm blessed. I hashtag it on Instagram and we're good to go. And while it's easy to be a little cynical about that, the way we use the word blessing today is actually somewhat accurate. Uh, to be blessed is, to give a simple definition, uh, to be usually happy by God's favor. To be blessed is to be usually happy by God's favor. But there's two problems with our culture's idea of, of being blessed and, and blessing. And the first one is that we often don't properly recognize the blesser, God. You know, so we're, we're blessed 
but that doesn't translate into us recognizing God as the bestower of the blessing. Um, Second, it, it fails to see we often fail to see, not always, but we often fail to see that our trials and our pains are blessings. And that sometimes the things that we think are blessings are actually curses or at least dangers to us. Most Americans would have a hard time with, say, Acts chapter 5, when the apostles there are arrested, they're beaten for preaching the gospel. And then they rejoice that they were worthy of being beaten for Jesus' name. Most Americans can't square that with a hashtag for blessings. But I digress. But here's what's so significant about this prayer request. Jabez has been born from perhaps a particularly harsh consequence of the false curse. He's been labeled as a name that could easily be taken as a curse. That was the superstition at least. And Jabez's prayer is emphatic. It can't be captured well in English, but it's emphatic. He is pleading with God for this blessing. But Jabez recognized that no curse can befall the one who is blessed by God. And God's blessing can reverse any curse. For a man who is primarily known otherwise for pain, this is confidence in the God of Israel. He is trusting God to dictate his life's course, not his history. God had promised blessing for his people. And Jabez counted himself in that number and believed that promise. So are you defined by your culture? Are you defined by your history? Are you defined by your past? Are you defined by your present? For some of you, that might be a really good thing right now. Perhaps those things have been very good up to this point in your life, your upbringing, your past, your history. But for most of us, they won't always be good, and, and we will endure pain. And Jabez, however, sought his identity in something more permanent than his history. He sought his identity in the God he served. Jabez's second prayer, second petition, sounds foreign to us, but let's look at it. He prays, and enlarge my border, and and that your hand might be with me. It's arguably two prayers, but they are so closely related. I'm just going to count them together here for the the purposes of this message. And, And while the prayer for borders might sound strange to us, it makes tremendous sense in the context of the Old Testament. The Israelites, as we saw, were given the land of Canaan on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea as a possession. But first they needed to drive out the current inhabitants who had become terribly wicked. But that would be easy if they kept faith in God. In fact, at several points where these matters are being discussed with the Israelites, God promises them that if they remain faithful, he will enlarge their borders. Almost identical language to what Jabez is using here. And so again, we see Jabez trusting God's promise and praying for it. If I'm right in suspecting that Jabez lived during the period of the judges, then his prayer is even bolder 
than we might at first imagine. God's promises are never less true that we might have less confidence in them. But our external circumstances, we're human after all, can seem more or less hopeful at times. And that sometimes necessitates greater faith. During the period of the judges, Israel had lost ground, had lost territory. Occasionally they'd gain some back, but then they'd lose even more. The land they had been promised was in peril because of their lack of faithfulness. They were regularly being pillaged and attacked and threatened. Uh, Mesopotamia, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, Moab, Hazor, people after people and city after city attacked the Israelites and put them back on their heels. And a person might be forgiven uh, for desiring merely to keep the enemies at bay, to lose no more ground, and to stand fast in the land and just hold on to these towns and cities and fields that we're left with. But Jabez knew God's promises and prayed boldly that God would expand his borders. For Jabez to expand his borders in the period of Judges would mean that Jabez and those who were responsible to him would go to war and drive out these wicked people that God had already passed judgment on to conquer them and to take territory that would not only be a blessing to him, but be a blessing to the nation of Israel. And more than that, the blessings of the Old Testament were often physical. God chose a man, a family, a land, but these things were just shadows of a better heavenly reality. Although God was, was prayed to by Jabez very boldly that God would expand his borders, and God did so, that, that wasn't simply for Jabez's benefit. When the Israelites journeyed through to the land, it, it was God's hand that was described over and over again as what went out and fought for the Israelites. His hand was the metaphorical extension of his judgment and his power over these nations that had rejected him. Jabez wasn't merely praying for an enlarged territory so that he could have a bigger house or a bigger farm. He was praying that God's hand would go out and fight for him the territory would increase so that the, the region over which God's reign was established would increase. These things were a shadow, but Christians know that a chosen man, Jesus, who is also God, was greater than Abraham or Jacob. Christians know that our family not the Israelites, but the church. A spiritual kinship of adoption into God's own family, not the biological progeny of an ancient ancestor. We know that we await a, a kingdom in a sweeter land, a, a renewed land in which heaven becomes one with earth and we bask in the glory of our creator. And so we don't necessarily look for God's favor in fleeting things like Jabez did. But the land was at least in part designed to represent God's kingly rule, to show the nations of the world that the blessings of the living God, what they looked like 
And the idea was that the other nations of the world would see what they looked like in Israel and they would seek God and worship him as a result. Today, while Christians await a kingdom from heaven, we nonetheless see the reign of God expanding as he conquers hearts and minds by the gospel. And people come to him and worship. If Jabez increased his territory, Israel increased his territory. And a witness to God was increased. And so I think the parallel for us would be one of two things or both. It's the expansion of God's reign in your own heart. So that God's righteous rule controls more and more of your life. And becomes more reflective of his holiness and character. And second, it's that God's rule might expand into others' lives through you. In other words, that in your boldly speaking the gospel, God might conquer new hearts and save new souls. The word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And in either of these two cases, the church is increased and the witness to God is increased. The third prayer that, that Jay, well, fourth, but third one we'll, as, as we'll catalog it. Jabez says, and, and, and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. The final request is very general, but he prays for a life free from the pains of evil. The word rendered evil or harm here is usually, most commonly, it refers to the perils of life. More than moral evil. It can refer to moral evil. But it's usually more. It's the invading army. It's the locust plague. It's the epidemic. The hurricane. The broken leg that prevents you from plowing your field. The drought. He riffs on his name. Pain. And is even more explicit. Reverse the curse of my name, God. Do not let my name be my destiny. And God answers it. As before, God had promised his people that these types of evils in the world would not befall his people and that they would be successful in the land if only they maintained faithfulness. Jabez was not praying on a whim here. He was relying deeply on the long-standing promises of God that by faith he would bless his people in the land of Israel. And so when we look at Jabez's circumstances and then how he prays, Jabez prayed big, risky prayers because his faith pushed his prayers beyond our measly human vision. It was always grounded in the promises of God. But Jabez wasn't satisfied with a little portion of the promise of God. His faith pushed him to ask bigly, you know, to take the land. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, to, to, to take this land to, for God's own glory's sake. To be blessed rather than to be cursed. He could have prayed small prayers, but he prayed big prayers because he understood by faith that God's promises were at least as big as his requests. They were always grounded in the promises of God. And God answered Jabez because God answers faithful prayer. It's something I've said before and, and it bears repeating again. 
that when our hearts are aligned with God and we desire the things that God desires, then we will be moved to pray for the things that God desires because the things that we desire are the same things that God desires. And when we desire what God desires, guess what? We get what we desire because we desire the same things that God wants and God gets what he wants. He's sovereign. And so a big part of this is is understanding who God is, what God is like, what God wants, our hearts being conformed to his heart. And when we're on the same page as the king, the desires of our hearts are filled. But this can't exist without faith. And so there is the the real question, you know, do, do you want blessing? This is what Jabez received was blessing. And God promises that there is blessing for those who turn in faith to him who recognize the the man that he has chosen to judge the nations, to rule as king in his name, Jesus, who died on the cross to pay the penalty and the price for our sins, to buy sinners out of their sinfulness, who rose again from the dead because it could not hold him. He conquers, even as we talked about last week. And those who turn to Christ in faith are certainly blessed. Not because they have land, not because they have property, not because they have finances, not because they have... You may have those things, you may not. But there's a a, a blessing in knowing that we are always satisfied in him and that he is bringing all things together for the good of those who love him and that he is a God who answers prayer. He answers faithful prayer even in the midst of the darkest eras of our lives, even in the times that seem the most bleak, when we trust on his promises, he answers faithful prayer. Let's pray in faithful prayer. God, we know that you are good and you are good to those who love you. We know that if we love you, you are taking our circumstances and you are using them to bring about good in our lives. We confess that we don't see it and we are thankful, God, when you give us glimpses. But help us to have faith in your promises. Faith that absent of the evidence, absent of a clear vision of how you are blessing us, we know, nevertheless, that you are actively at work in our lives for our good and for your glory. Father, I pray for your blessing on us. Make us happy by your faithful provision. May our great delight be in Jesus, who cannot be taken from us. And so we have joy continually. 
I pray for those who know that their lives have been hard, that they would see that you write a different story, a better story for those who turn in faith. I pray, God, that you would mold us into the image of your son, Jesus. That you would rebuke us, encourage us, exhort us by your word and by the loving word and example of our fellow Christians. That we might be made more like you and that your kingly rule of our hearts would be more complete that we might bear witness to you and so that your word might conquer those we love, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, and so that you would increase your witness in a dying world and that the nations would flock to you. Father, we know that you have promised these things and we have confidence that you will bring them to pass. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand and continue to worship.